fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. on FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. All right, welcome back to the show. And now we've got our guest, uh, incredible writer. She's been writing for years and a new book coming out. The new book is called Unnatural Death, a Scarpetta novel. And this is book 27 in the K. Scarpetta book series. So, Patricia Cornwell, thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's already fun. <laughs> yeah, this is just, just a laugh at that second here. This, <laughs> a, this is something that uh, always I always wonder when I talk to writers. This is book 27. How can you keep it going for so long with one main character? Like, what is it that you do? Is there, is there something, a, a trick or a secret or some sort of way of keeping it fresh? Um, that's a very good question, and and um, I, and it's it's a I think I think it's a very hard thing to keep things fresh like that unless you go to somewhat extraordinary lengths. And you know what? I have it's true. I've got so many Scarpetta books that I swear I almost have lost count of them. I, I I'm not even sure it's 28. It might be one more than that. I'm not. I can't tell you anymore. But the the thing is, um, about in 2015 when my the Scarpetta book called Chaos came out. It was that or 2016, I can't remember for sure. But at that point, I thought, you know what, I just don't feel like I have anything new to say. I said, the only thing I have left to do with Scarpetta is put her on the moon or something. And so I decided to quit. And then I decided, you know what, speaking of the moon, I'm going to turn my attention to outer space. And so I turned, I started doing all of, of the research with NASA and, and all of those things related, the same way I've done all this research in forensics and everything over the years. And I wrote two space thrillers that nobody gave a hoot about. But then COVID started, and, and I started thinking, what would Scarpetta do in this world today? You know, January 6th and COVID and all the rest of it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go take a look at this again. I'm going to move her back to Virginia, and I'm going to do things differently because I have a whole new toolbox now. I can deal with cyber crimes. I can deal with a death in outer space. I can deal with Havana syndrome. I can deal with um, some of the technologies that you see in this, this new book, Unnatural Death, where I don't want to give spoilers, but suffice it to say, some of the extraordinary things that you see or hear about in that book are absolutely real technologies, um, and you can Google them, and you'll see them out there. It's shocking what's out there. So that's how I keep it fresh. I keep doing the research to keep her living in the same world the rest of us do. If I wasn't for that, I would have run out of things to say a long time ago. Well, and so when you, you talk about her like she's a real person, what's your relationship with Kay? It's exactly what people say to her. They say, you talk about that Cornwell lady like she's a real person. Um, and and I don't know who created whom. She's, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's not like she's a real person in the sense that I think I'm going to walk out of my office and, and I'm going to see her. I don't expect anything like that. And she doesn't talk inside of my head or do things like that. But I, I, I know how to channel 
whoever she is. I, I, she, in fact, when she starts talking sometimes, um, I'm, I feel almost like I'm taking dictation more than I'm making it up, supposedly. Uh, but I couldn't do that had I not walked in her shoes for so long, you know, working in a morgue for six years and then continuing to do that kind of research ever since. Um, I mean, I saw thousands of autopsies, and I had to learn to think the way she does. So when she's solving a case, it's pretty much she's thinking the way I'm thinking, and I'm thinking the way she's thinking. I don't know who thought it first. So when she's when she's uh, speaking to you and you're dictating, like you you are you still allowed to drive? Do they let you keep your license? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when I'm writing, I don't drive or do. And just sitting right here where I am right now, I, I'm in my little. It's like my spaceship, my office. It's soundproofed, and I don't allow any distractions. I go through the looking glass and do my thing. But it's not that she's talking to me. I hear her talking to the other characters the same way I hear them talking to her. And and, and that is the, the secret to good dialogue is you have to know how a character's going to think. Um, and also you, to study the good ways to write dialogue. Read Hemingway if you want to learn how to write good dialogue. But uh, it, it's it's... It's spending so much time soaking in the way somebody would think who does that for a living that it becomes natural. You know what she would say when she finds a certain thing in an autopsy. You know what she's going to think at the scene. You know her reaction when, when the strange, huge footprint is found at the crime scene out in the middle of the forest in this book. Um, and it's pretty obvious that we're wondering, is there a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot you know, in the area? I know how she's going to react to that, and I know how Marino's going to react to that, and I know how Lucy will, because um, I know who they are, and they're all going to have a different reaction. And that's what makes things seem real and credible. And by the way, my whole goal is to take you on a journey. That's, I want you to forget about me and to be taken somewhere fun and scary. That's, and that's popular today, too, so I think that might work real well. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a try, okay, and we'll, we'll let you know. Okay. Uh, well, no, but it sounds like okay. So Kay is 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 you know you're you're living through Kay's experience in a sense. Like when you when you when whenever she's going through all these different events in the book, you're you're there and taking it in and writing it down and stuff. So at the end of one of these books, do do you find that going through that experience and kind of living it out with her um, changes you some? Oh, that's another good question, um, and you've hit on something really important that most people don't realize. And I didn't know this when I started out writing. I didn't, you know, when I created characters, I didn't realize that they're creating me. Had no clue. Um, you know, when I went to take helicopter lessons or thought I better learn how to scuba dive or ride a motorcycle or do all these things because the characters do them, or when I would go to crime scenes with the police or at the autopsies or murder trials or talk to family members who had the worst thing happen to someone they love, I did not realize that I would never be the same from any of that. And that is the magic of, of creation, that what you create also creates you. So you should be careful what you do because it will change you and in my case I feel that doing all these things have changed me for the better because I have a more open mind, I've had different experiences, um, I think differently about a lot of things than I did when I was younger and but but that's but yes I, uh, I've been absolutely changed by all of this. When you do this, like when you started Unnatural Death, did you have it in your mind how it would end? like where it would go. Honey, I didn't even know how it was going to begin. 
<laughs> no, I'm not one of the, you know, I have a very strange process. I do not do outlines. I don't have index cards. I mean, I have notebooks where I take research notes when I go out into the field to do things. But basically, I start with an idea of something, a what if. And I imagined, I don't know why I started thinking about Bigfoot. I have no earthly idea. But I started, I thought, I wonder what would happen if she had a really awful crime scene out in the middle of nowhere and somebody found a footprint like this. Because I know, like you, I mean, I've seen these things all over the media, and I've read a lot of stuff about it. And so I started looking into all that, and once I start doing research, it changes what my story's going to be because it all depends on what I believe and what I think. And I started getting into all that, and it starts unfolding, and I get surprised by stuff I wasn't planning on. Um, I don't know very much when I start a book, and I spend the first five months probably on the first 50 pages where I'm trying to figure out exactly what the algorithm is, because it's like I'm creating a, a computer program where you're setting all these things up that have to bounce off of each other and create other drama as it unfolds. And part of, I think, the reason it's my work, I believe, is, is vital to people is that I don't know the answers when I set out. I'm discovering things along the way, and that makes it a lot more interesting to me than to be just looking at an outline and knowing that on page 100 I need to have this happen. Well, maybe on page 100 my characters have an idea of something else that needs to happen, so I listen to them. Yeah, I'm curious because you know, research really guides your writing, and it clearly uh, passion. I mean, as you're remarking, it's, it's changed you. Have you gotten, ever gotten to a point in a story where you, had, you, you, you need it to go a, different, a direction or... Um, you just didn't have the research. It wasn't not that you weren't going to try, but you just couldn't find it. Then how did you address that? How do you fill in the gaps where the research can't you know, give you an answer? Well, I have one little rule of thumb that's always been my rule of thumb, which is it has to be within the realm of possibility. That's the only, that, that's the only requirement because some of the things that I've written about aren't necessarily true at the time I'm writing them, but then they become true later because... I know that it's probably coming based on the way technologies go. Um, just look at an old show like Star Trek. Every bit of that was ridiculous back then. Now, my, a lot of it is, is old hat in terms of things that are being done, and there will be more that happens that way. So, um, I, But I've tried to be a little more flexible as I've gone along, because you make a very good point. And I remember I had an interview a few years ago with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he said, do you ever get tired of just sticking with what you know? Do you ever want to sort of just go out there and imagine something, you know, like science fiction type thing? And I would say, oh, no, not me. I kind of have to really know it's true. And then I started doing research on Bigfoot, and I threw all that right out the window because I, I thought, you know what, I don't know if this is true, but it could be. In fact, there's a lot of people that think it is, and they just had a sighting in Colorado the other day that made the New York Times. Um, and the video is quite interesting. So I saw that, yes. it just has to be within the realm of possibility. What I'm not going to do is have a lake monster coming out of a little pond out in the middle of the woods that we know really couldn't exist or an alligator someplace that could, it couldn't be. I have to be able to explain. I mean, even in this story, A Natural Death, where you're out in the woods and the characters are hearing what, what's called wood knocking. It's like a, someone, uh, it's like a log ba banging against a tree, and it's, it's thought that the that these the, the Bigfoots, and that's how you pronounce the plural, that they this is one of the things they do to mark their territory so that there's hunters or other people coming around. It's like a warning light, go away. Well, 
So my character is hearing this, and I'm thinking to myself, but what if this isn't true? They couldn't really hear it. You have to explain it. But then I come to find out there are technologies now where literally through vibrations and other things, the sky over your head can be turned into a speaker where you might hear things that you swear to God are true, but they're, you're not really hearing anything that's there. We're getting into the metaverse of not being real sure what's real anymore, and that's only going to become more of the case. But to answer your question specifically, I am okay with where anything takes me as long as I know it's possible. If it's not possible, then I'm just not going to go there. You know, um, I think one of the things, and this is purely, I'm also a writer and, and think a lot about human psychology, and um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. It's talking about an area that so there's a lot of research, but there's also a lot of mystery. Um, when you're crafting your characters, you know, how much do you use sort of this psychological research, or is it more come from a more a, an internal impulse? Well, no, I think that it, I, I mean, I think this has to do with knowing your characters. It's like when I've talked about, let's take Book Bigfoot, you think Scarpetta, Marino, Lucy, uh, and, and, and then Dorothy, you know, Lucy's mother, now Marino's wife, um, how, psychologically, how are they going to react to this? Marino wants to believe it's true because that fits with his psyche. Lucy's very skeptical, but she doesn't particularly care either. Scarpetta doesn't really care either, but she wouldn't want to hurt whatever it is if it's real and you have to work a footprint like any footprint. And whatever it means, she'll go with it. I mean, she doesn't have an opinion. Um, and, 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 and on and on it goes. You have to know these people to know how they're going to react to something. Um, and it could be even to who's coming to dinner or, you know, what the food is or what someone says to them. It's all got to do with how they're wired. And I think that writers and John I'm sure this is I, I know this is true of you because I remember you from a long time ago but you you know really good writers have I, they have to have some kind of intuition I think I don't see how you can be a good writer especially fiction writer and not have some sense of reading the room that you're creating and knowing how these people are feeling yeah you definitely have to have that curiosity I think yeah hi Patricia this is, is this is Mike uh, we do have a, a fellow a uh, person that we know that did some research for you, Keith Skinner. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he and I, we, uh, we were, uh, we did the lectures together in 2017 at the Jack the Ripper conference in Liverpool. That's what I researched, Tumble Tea. But that's not yeah. my question. My, my question is more of research again. Not only are you researching, you're, you're using researchers as well. I absolutely do. Now, Keith was a different story because with Jack the Ripper, that was, you know, that's nonfiction. And so I was using, all kinds of people, like the scientists who did the who did the you know, analyze the, the evidence and like particularly the watermarks of the stationery that the Ripper used and that the you know the artist Walter Sickert used and, and others and so on. Um, that had to be real scientists. They did all that. That was not um, me doing fiction. Now, but right. even with the fiction I write, I do have consultants. Um, I have mm -hmm. several NASA people who are retired. One of them. We just heard her, right? One of them. Oh, no, no, no. It seems like she would say, well, Stacey's <laughs> much too young to be retired. She's not NASA, but she could oh. be. She's actually my partner, but she, oh, that's why okay. she gets roped into all, doing all these things to help me out, of course. But, <laughs> but um, I have consultants like, uh, like one of my consultants is an expert in electromagnetic energy. Uh, you know, he deals with satellites and all this kind of stuff, and he understands all these bizarre abstractions that I still have uh, difficulty with. Um, but, you know, if you're going to write about Havana syndrome, microwave, high-energy weapons, 
or what I talked about the sky being turned into a speaker, all these kind of things. I have, I have people who actually know about that sort of thing. I have a, a good friend who works for the Secret Service, you know, and I can, um, they, they help me with making sure I get my facts right about things like that. So, and I'll go to their training facility or go to their headquarters. I mean, whatever people will let me do that's helpful. Um, so I can understand better what I'm talking about. That's what I do. But I, I've always used real people. I mean, from day, day one, my most prominent consultant was Dr. Marcella Fierro, the medical examiner who taught me everything and who I still talk to today. I called her when I was thinking about Bigfoot. She's now in her 80s. And I said, Marcella, I said, if you found this out in the middle of the woods, in the, you know, in an old gold mine and this huge footprint in the dirt, what would you do? And she said, well, she said, I first would think someone's having a good time with me. She said, but I would work it like any other piece of evidence. That's what you do. And I said, I thought, thank you for that. It makes me feel even better about what I'm doing right now. So I always touch base with real people if I can. Did you touch base with uh, a lot of the Native Americans have some kind of background or history with Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Did you, did you uh, do any of that kind of stuff with the Native Americans? I didn't go and meet with any Native Americans about it. I read a lot of things and looked at these amazing pictographs, you know, that are on walls, like stone walls that have been protected for over a thousand years on some of the, the tribal land, like out in California. And there's if one of them in particular, it's a creation story that's thought to be over a thousand years old that depicts a Bigfoot family. And when the, the male, the big Bigfoot, uh, is is crying, and because pe because people are afraid of him, it's remarkable. Um, this is when I started getting interested because it's when you hear things that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, and the the, the stories that have been passed down through the you know through the the tribe, uh, the tribes about that you know their their memories or or stories I heard about these creatures that would actually help protect the tribe against bears. Um, on and on it goes back to the early days of explorers that saw things like this. I, and so, and then of course, I talked to one of today's experts, uh, one of the foremost is a guy named Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Oh, yes. And I talked to him, and he told really? me his experiences, and, and we talked about, of course, you know, the, the scientific reasons for it being probable, or even at least likely, that there could be a Bigfoot, because that creature did exist long ago and they found fossils in China. And the Gigantic theory is, yeah, exactly, you pronounce it so much better than I do. That's why I, <laughs> I just say giant ape. But the fact <laughs> is, um, there's a very, I don't see why in the world it's not possible, as it's been theorized, that during the Ice Age when the sea levels dropped and land bridges were formed, formed between the continents, that with early humans coming basically from what Siberia to today's Alaska, that why these creatures might not have gone right there with them. Right. And that could explain why we have a remnant still out there somewhere. Uh, just like, there's so many things. I, I really, I don't ever snub my nose at much of anything until I look into it first. Right, right. That's why we, we have one of those giant apes for in trial right now. <laughs> no, no. I, that, you know, I, I wouldn't blame Bigfoot for any of the stuff that I see a certain people doing out there these days. Bigfoot's got way too much class for that. <laughs> Yeah, Bigfoot makes more sense. <laughs> I got a T-shirt. The Secret Service gave me a T-shirt that says Bigfoot for President, and I'm thinking I might wear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't lose now. Are you, are you, are you um, 
Do you have any sort of subtext then or meaning or do you have a point or something you want the reader to get out of it or is it just purely entertainment? Well, you know, as, as um, I don't know if you know who Rick Rubin is, uh, the music producer genius who's written this fantastic book called The Creative Act, A Way of Being, um, which I keep on my desk. And one of the things he says is you, you don't, as an artist, you don't make a point because you're like an orange. Orange juice is going to come out of you even if you don't try. Your point will be made because you have one and it will shine through. So I try not to deliberately be, you know, to have a point. Um, I let the characters have their points, and their points are usually going to be consistent with, with my own ethics and how I feel about things. When the number one rule is, um, in addition to do no harm, is you never abuse power. That's one thing Scarpetta will not do is abuse power. And that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the root of all, everything that's wrong in the world is the abuse of power. So, but I don't need to say that because if you do the story the way it should be done, people know that without you telling them. And so I try to, I try just to be as honest in my writing as I am when I talk to people for, in person, which is they don't want to be lectured to and neither do my readers. Right. It's more of an organic sort of happening, really. Yes. Just, just happens. Um, are, are you thinking about, when you write these books, when you think, do you think about uh, violence or, or how, it, how it's portrayed in the book or any sort of, you know, um, anything gory? I'm much more careful about all that than I used to be. In the 90s, I feel like I'm talking about the 1890s now, but in the 90s, <laughs> um, it being really graphic was sort of people wanted it they they weren't they they wanted to see things they'd not seen before you know we were we did not have the problems in the world that we have today and um i'm i'm much more i'm i'm much i don't know what would be the word that i use but i have a very guided approach to the graphicness of what i do i give you enough so you get the sense of it but i don't always spell it out in brutal detail, if it's not necessary, I'm not going to because I don't need to. What Scarpetta does, the very nature of it is as gory as anything flipping gets. And I can say a lot, very little would have you see a lot, like the very brutal crime scene in this new story. Um, and it's graphic, but it's not as graphic as I could have made it. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I do think about it. I think about it a lot because I try to be responsible, and that may sound a strange thing to say, but I'm not trying to hurt people or harm them or give them psychological damage or make them not want to eat dinner. Um, but I'm also not going to act like that violence is sweet or cute or something mythical about it. It's ugly as sin. Now, I uh, teach in an MFA program, and I teach a lot of aspiring writers um, who, you know, look outward at other writers of all types, in, in, including yourself, of course. Um, what sort of advice would you give them um, as they're sort of uh, figuring what course they want to take in life, in, in writing life specifically? Well, I tell, tell them two things right off the bat. The first thing I would say to them is find out what you're interested in. Because if you're not interested in something, then don't go try to make yourself learn about it. What fills you full of wonder? And for me, when I was started out as a crime reporter, I was filled through full of wonder when the body would be removed from the crime scene, and I wondered what they did with it. And I see the detectives coming out of 
some smelly little mortuary somewhere, and they had Vicks up their nose, and they stunk to high heaven, and they wouldn't tell me what, you know, anything about what they had seen. And so I, I had wonder about that. Then the first time I went to the morgue and met Dr. Fierro, she started talking about lasers and DNA. Then I was really filled with wonder, and I said, I've got to learn about this. Okay, so number one, find out what fills you full of wonder. Number two, go chase after it with all your might. Unless it's you are filled with wonder about thinking about being a serial killer, then I cannot advise you to do that with all your might. But whether it's forensics or psychology or a certain career, like, like maybe you're fascinated by outer space or maybe, you know, the ocean or whatever it might be, go out and look for your story until it finds you. Because it will not find you if you don't go looking. That's what I've discovered. And, and that, that is, will keep you going because what you're really trying to do, it sounds strange to say, but you're trying to channel something. You're trying to go out and find something that wants to work through you and tell a story that might be different from someone else's. And don't let anybody else really tell you how to do that. Nobody told me to go do the kind of research I do. In fact, um, Mrs. Billy Graham, the wife of the evangelist who I did my first book about, she would call me and she'd say, get out of the morgue. And then she'd hang up. <laughs> and she'd call again and say, honey, get out of the morgue, please. And that didn't work either. And so, because I knew I needed to do this. I knew I needed to. I, or I had nothing to say. And that's the worst thing of all as writers when you might write like an angel, but you have nothing to say. And I'm not saying I write like an angel, but I know John does. <laughs> you know, it's so, what's so interesting, um, I, I, I do find myself trying to offer advice that feels helpful to them. And I, I know sometimes, you know, you enter into an MFA program, you're hoping that it's going to, you know, like you said, sort of give you the answers or this, you know, supply the, the road for how to be a writer. And I think often my response is re resilience. And could you speak a little bit about resilience that you've had to face in your writing career? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, going all the way back to our Davidson days where my senior year, I was asked if I wanted to do an honors thesis. And as usual, I avoided anything that smacked of footnotes and outlines. And so I said, I just write a novel if that's all right. And so they let me, and, and that was first bite into the bitter fruit of what you imagine and what you do might too, be two very different things. And my first novel is in a box where it belongs. And then when I just started doing the research at the medical examiner's office, I wrote three full-length novels that got every, both, all three of them got rejected. And by the time they, one had made the rounds for a year. I already had written another one, and after the third was rejected, where Scarpetta was a minor character, I have to tell you the truth, I was about as depressed as I've ever been. Um, I did not feel resilient at all at that time. I was, I thought I'd ruined my life. I'd, you know, been a Davidson honors person and, and a Charlotte Observer award-winning journalist, and now I was just an employee in a morgue. What the world had I done to myself? And, and so this is what I did. And, and again, in a, in a Master of Fine Arts program, they'd probably tell you not to do this. I called this one editor had rejected all three of those books, and she had been at least kind in her notes. She worked at the Mysterious Press. Oh, yeah? And I called her one day. And I called her one day, and I said, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I said, but please, what, should I quit? And she said, no, I don't think you should quit. She said, 
But I'm going to I said, well, what am I doing wrong? And she says, well, ditch the main character. He's a dud. And the medical examiner lady, she's the most interesting. Why don't you make her the main character? And I said, oh, okay. And she said, and one more thing. She said, you work in the morgue, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, the stuff you've been writing about, is that what you see there? And I said, no. And she says, well, how about let me see what you see? So I hung up and, I, oh, that woman, internal gratitude, uh, gratitude by the way, um, she's no longer with us. But I thought there were these awful serial killings going on in Richmond where I was working. And I started thinking, what would Scarpetta do if this were happening in her city? Now, meanwhile, I'm terrified myself because I'm working at the morgue and, and these are happening while we're all there. And, I mean, I put changed the locks on my door. I learned how to shoot a gun. I was terrified of this, these serial killings. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And, and I lived through it for quite a while. But that is how postmortem came about. And I made a decision then that if you're going to write about crime, you're going to tell the truth about it. You are not going to glamorize it. You're not going to celebrate what should be, should be condemned. And therefore, you will have to tell it from Scarpetta's point of view, or I don't know how else you can avoid doing all those things you don't want to do. And so that's kind of how it, where it went. But yes, you have to be resilient. I wrote four full-length books, including the one at Davidson, and I'd written Postmortem. It got rejected by everybody, too. So then I knew I was done. And I started taking the Amtrak train to newspapers for, to see if anybody would hire me, and they wouldn't. And then I found out on my answering machine that Scribner's was almost going to take it, and then they decided they would. And, and so there we have that. It finally worked. Those were bleak times, but they prepared me because I had bleak times since then. Not, you know, no matter how well you do, there are times when things don't go the way you want or publicity is devastating or whatever it might be, and you, you say to yourself, I've been, I've been through worse times than this. I can make it, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, thank you. I think um, it's, those are important things for folks to hear who aspire, aspire to this profession. It really, it, I think it, it matters a lot to be honest about what they might be in store for, but also there's lots of hope, too. So. Yeah. Well, if it's, real, kill the critics. <laughs> if it's real, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I just try not to look at any of that. I mean, it's... The, the, the very first book review I got for Postmortem was so hideous that I felt like I was in a catatonic state for several minutes. I couldn't even move. It was the local reporter, and it was dreadful And, and for Postmortem. And, and then at the same time, I got called by the most prominent bookstore in Richmond that said that they were banning my book because of its graphic nature and because it was too it was upsetting for anybody who'd lived through these serial murders here or whatever. And so I thought... You know, once again, Cornwell, you've ruined your life. You wanted to be a professional tennis player. You started getting beat by 12-year-olds, so you gave that up. Then you decided you're going to be a writer, and all your books get rejected, and when you finally get one that works, it's got horrible book reviews, and it's banned in Richmond. What else do you want to do? Yeah. Well, that's, that, that's that newspaper reporter that died mysteriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but the thing is, all of that worked to my advantage. I mean, because of being banned, it made the, the, what we called the wire back in the day. Um, and then it started getting fabulous book reviews because it wasn't just some local person who had an axe to grind. I mean, and, and then it started winning awards. So, you know, won five, the five top, five top crime awards for one book, which has never happened since, actually. So, you know, so what I tell you, your writers out there, for God's sake, don't quit. If it's in you to do this, it's not a choice. It's who you are. 
make it work. So now about your readers, uh, Unnatural Death. I have a question about, do you have a character that's inspired by Jeff Meldrum? I do not. Um, but I do mention Jeff Meldrum because I have a, a really cool uh, female anthropologist who, Scarpetta, who, who, who tr I have in the story that she trained under Jeff Meldrum out oh, cool. in Idaho. And so that she learned from the maestro. Uh, that prevented me from having to put Jeff in the book himself, which can be awkward when you put a real person in a novel. They might not like where you take them. So, but, but, Jeff knows, but Jeff knows that I did that to, to show him the respect that, that I feel for um, him talking to me and, and for the work he does. Uh, yeah, I, again, uh, I'm quite impressed with that because I am, I'm a science guy and I'm a skeptic, but um, that's why I love what Jeff Meldrum says because he's a scientist. Well, and when then, he describes the anatomy of a foot and that he can tell you know, that this creature was actually looking over its right shoulder when it left that footprint because of the way the muscles are moving, which is something that you couldn't do if you were 3D printing a prosthetic device to try to fake something like that. I mean, it's the movement um, that he talks about that's extremely interesting about these footprints. But, but you also, when you hear so many stories that when people keep talking about something forever and they have for hundreds of years, you really should pay attention to it, whether whether it's um, a cryptid, you know, some par alleged paranormal thing. Of course, Bigfoot's laughing over that. He's as real as what he's eating right about now. Um, and I, and I, I mean, I'd love to meet him, but I just, I'd said, please don't scare me too much. I mean, I really would love to meet him, but I, w I think I might have a little bit of a panic attack. But I, I, I always talk to experts. And, I mean, even Jane Goodall says, I'm not going to say Bigfoot's not real. It's, it's like UFOs. When enough people keep seeing all this, and I've seen a couple of those myself, and you have to say, what is this? Well, the other question I had is because about NASA, which is always very intriguing because I'm really into SpaceX and the Starship that's out to be off. Did you uh, uh, ever, when you're involved with NASA, um, did you ever involve yourself with SpaceX? Well, I didn't. SpaceX wasn't real amenable to a writer coming and hanging out with them, but I did see. I mean, I did see some of the stuff they did because when I would be at NASA Langley, um, for example, they they dropped. You know, they had this thing called the gantry there, which which Michael, I'm sure you know about. You know, this where that goes all the way back to the Apollo days, where they now do um, drop tests and splashdowns. Although I think they're doing it mostly with computers these days. It's this huge structure. Well, well, they take like a test model of a dragon crew capsule, and they drop it into this million-gallon swimming pool, you know, from a certain height to test how it's going to do under certain conditions. And so in spending a lot of time in places like that, I would get exposed to seeing things like that. In fact, the SpaceX people, when they were doing that drop, they were nice enough to let me go to the hangar where they, the crew capsule was to show me how the, um, the cr quote, crash dummy had done inside of it. I think it's the same crash dummy that got sent up into orbit by Elon Musk, as a matter of fact. But I mean, oh, I, this car. <laughs> it might have been, but you know, the, the, I mean, I would ask permission because I, I'm, I'm always mindful of people. They're doing their real work, and I'm not here to interfere with that or to divulge information that's inappropriate. And I'm always grateful that people share. But the space stuff. That's one of the coolest things I've ever done, I have to tell you. I love it. Oh, jeez, yes. I thought the world was flat. We haven't <laughs> been to the moon, have we? It's not? 
Yeah. Well, I, thought the, I thought the space station was just kind of, you know, just going from one end to the other. I didn't realize. Now, I'm glad you think, you know, thank God you told me that because this would be so embarrassing if I said something else. Yeah, you're, you're going to write the wrong book. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, are you familiar with the book Flatlander? Have you ever heard of that? That was written so. back in the 1800s and synonymous, and it's, you would, Michael, you would love it. It's, mm. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it makes fun of stuff like that. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the writer is anonymous, and, and, on, oh, really? and I have an autographed copy of, of this book, and I'm thinking, how can you have an autographed copy of something that's anonymous? And yeah, did the rare book dealer take me for a ride? Does it say anonymous? Anonymous. I'll have to. I'll, I'll pull it off my shelf and let you know. <laughs> yeah, I hope you didn't pay too much. I know. It's like if someone tells you it's an autographed copy of the Bible, you should ask about it before you buy that too. Yeah, it depends. It's just autographed. Um, well, listen. So, what's your process here? Are you able to like all of this work you do? Are you or do you just sort of? sit down and do it nine to five type thing or do you have to be in a certain mood or atmosphere when you write like where does that where does it start my characters don't care what mood i'm in and if i don't show up they don't either so i i go at it every day unless i'm traveling or have something else going on where i can't um i go to my office you you know a decent hour when when stacy's home and you know i might get in my office around eight or so but if, if i'm by myself i might if I'm awake, I might be sitting at my desk at four in the morning. It doesn't matter. But I, um, my process is to literally try to be a clear channel where you are getting distractions out of your way. You focus on what you're doing and you see what happens. And one, my, my little rule of thumb is, when I'm getting started, is I always go back to where it was still working. And then I start from there. So I don't start with the last sentence I wrote. I go back to where I know I'm on solid ground, and then I work from there and just keep doing it in sections that way. Um, I never keep going unless I'm really sure of what I've already done because that's how you get off track and something gets poorly engineered and you don't want to do that. Right, right. So, so uh, tell us, um, who have you killed off in your book that's uh, inspired by real people you know? <laughs> well... Um, I, you know, let's just put it this way. Uh, I, <laughs> when I was a little kid and had to stay in a foster care several times, and there was the, the lady who was in charge of all that. The lady I had to, you know, the mother in that household was not the kindest person, to put it lightly. And and she's died a lot. She's died many times. <laughs> and she and and she's also then embodied very evil characters who who also usually die or they just get written out of the series or now I'll have to ask permission because as Jamie Lee Curtis told me, you don't get to kill off people anymore without talking to me first since they've got the TV rights. <laughs> so. I'm curious um, about, about the TV series. I was very excited to hear that. Can you sort of talk about how that came about? Um, and it's kind of, I know. I feel like I know this is something you've wanted for a while. Am I right about that? Oh, this has been like chasing after the Holy Grail. My first, my first movie option was 1989, a year before Scarpetta even came out for the first, before she was even published, and nothing. It was the strangest thing. I mean, nobody's. It's it's really rather much a mystery because it it was optioned by every big studio and all kinds of big names attached and. 
it just it, it never fell into place. Um, and then other things got made that were inspired by the world that Scarpetta made accessible to people. And then you have shows like CSI and all the rest of it. And that narrowed down the marketplace for even doing something like this. But then, and so I, it, you know, I, I'd about gotten to the point where I thought, you know, how weird that, that this best-selling series, and it might be the only one that never has TV or movie. Well, I, I was acquainted with Jamie Lee Curtis, and, and she actually was interested in my space series. And then they decided they, they didn't want to do that after all. But she said, but you know, what about Scarpetta? And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> and her production company, which also does Halloween, um, you know, they, they got all over it. And I tell you the truth, if it wasn't for Jamie, this wouldn't be happening. So, you know, she is the producer. She's, um, you know, and has her deal with, with Blumhouse and it's Amazon. And uh, as it is, Nicole Kidman is supposed to play Scarpetta and Jamie will play her, you know, Scarpetta's sister, Dorothy. And that beyond that, nothing I don't think has been cast because of the writer's strike, obviously, stopped all that. But I think at least, hopefully, it's going to start getting back into gear as these strikes get resolved. Mm -hmm. uh, at least the writer's strike is over, so some stuff can get going. So I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be really wonderful. If Nicole can't do it, I'll do it. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, maybe you can, you can, you can help. You can, maybe you can help Nicole. That would be better. <laughs> uh -huh. She probably could use some assistance, right? She probably knew at this. So. Well, speaking of the assistance, uh, uh, Patricia, one of the things that we research all the time about is uh, serial offenders and serial offender motive. Um, uh, have you researched? Have you, has that changed throughout uh, since the 90s on motive with your um, writing? You know, it's not so much motive. I think that I think the only thing that would really change very much at all about these kinds of offenders is is that we, um, is, you know, there's been more studies done to try to figure out why they're like this. Uh, you right. know, like PET scans and all the stuff studying the brain and something that, which is, which is how I met Stacy because when I was writing Predator in 2003, I, I wanted to I wanted to see what researchers were saying about the psychopathic brain. And so I, I went to Harvard and I was referred to her because she deals with, you know, she's the neuroscientist. So I've been interested in that for a long time. And there are all sorts of theories, as I'm sure you know, and there are certain markers. But the truth is, like when you look at Jack the Ripper, for example, no matter what we would know about that character's history, just regardless of who you think it is, nothing ever really satisfies the answer as to why somebody is wired this way. Why is a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer? Um, nature, nurture, DNA, forces beyond. It's, it's a mystery. Some of it is a mystery. Um, I think we have a pretty good idea of how they're going to behave. And, and that might be the most you get out of all this in studying them is, is knowing. And, and I'll give you a good example that's horrific. When oftentimes, at, well, sometimes at crime scenes when this kind of offender has been involved, it's not unusual to find photographs spread around and things that, that give you the idea that the victim was talking about her personal life. And I say her because so often the victims are women in these cases. Um, and that is your instinct that if I can make you, if I can humanize myself to you, if you see me as a mother or a daughter or a sister or the girl that you went out with in high school, you won't do this to me. Well, almost never does that work. These people right. have no remorse. They have no empathy. Um, their only fear, really, is of being caught. And, yes. and that's what I was told back in the beginning when I started doing all this 
in the, the research in the 1980s, and I don't, I don't know that that has changed all that much. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we really know. Uh, you know, I've got what 30 books on on true crime and killers, and and have met them and and written. So, it, it, I don't think we could ever really find out. Um, you hear a lot of stories, but um, I, I don't know. I, I there's no answer. I know. I, I've I've talked to a couple of them on death row, not anywhere near. I don't have the experience that you do, but I always came away with the same thing that I was looking something in the face that I was very glad there were was glass or bars between us, or that I was in an area where there were guards because there's something. With the and one of them was a woman who, you know, horrible, you know, just remorseless murders. Another was the railway killer, I believe he was called. Um, and I and I've also there have been several. I can't, I'm remembering them now, and all the same kind of thing where I felt you're in the you're in the presence of something you don't really understand. Right, right. You don't know where it's going to go. You know, actually, and I, the last one I, I met and I spent a week with, he um, is up for parole, and he only murdered seven people. Hmm. And and you know what? There was no guard with us. Well, I don't tend to go out with these killers, <laughs> and I might, you might want to, you might want to reconsider. I don't know. Yeah, but you know what? You know what really? No, what really, really got me involved in that one was because. Um, he got married again. Like he, a, a woman found him online, and now she's married to him and has conjugal visits, and she has two little girls the same age as the two girls that he had, oh, wow. um, you know, How done weird. bad things to. And, so, and I was just like, it's just, that in itself is, is just something else, to, just to talk to people. And, and Well, you know, I'll, I'll, being sort of glib aside, I maintain that these people who become those kinds of monsters didn't start out in life really. That's not their wish. They, I don't really think they can help it. I feel sorry. I feel sorry for them. Um, I don't want them hurting people anymore. But it's a it's a, a no win situation. It's awful what they do, and it's it's awful that that it what what they are who they are, and that they have to do this, and that they have to be punished. It's all awful. Right. Yeah. yeah, and Al, yeah. Al hires him as co-host. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be my next one. Well, you know, Patricia, it's been wonderful talking to you. You're amazing. and uh, you have well, a lot I say of the same about there. all of you, and thank you for oh. being so kind as to have me on. You're wonderful interviewers and so interesting yourselves. And, 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 and hugely accomplished, too. Uh. John, everybody is not me. I, I, I put out books that people don't want to read. Oh, that's not true. Uh, well, we appreciate it, and we're going to have your book up, website, everything going on. The new book, Unnatural Death, and it's another Scarpata Scarpata novel. And uh, Patricia Cornwell, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts. All shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.